Welcome to Rising Tide Startups, where today's most exciting solopreneurs, startups, and side hustlers share their startup stories. Rising Tide helps you break free from the Monday blues and launch your own startup. Each episode is a startup masterclass. Make sure you take notes. Take it away, Kevin. This is Kevin Pruitt with another episode of Rising Tide Startups, and my guest today is Abe K. Mark. Abe, thanks for joining us on Rising Tide. Kevin, thank you so much for having me here. So tell our listeners a little bit about Abe. Who is Abe? <laughs> Abe is a dad and he is the founder of uh, True Made Foods. So we recently founded and started uh, True Made Foods, which is a healthy food startup company that makes uh, healthy ketchup and barbecue sauce, sriracha out of vegetables. We cut the sugar and we add veggies instead, naturally sweetening our products and turning these junk foods into superfoods. Um, but they taste amazing. And uh, how do I know? Well, I, I got four kids and I taste test all our ketchups on our five-year-olds and you know, if a five-year-old doesn't like it, I'm not going to try to sell it. It's the Absolutely. Taste test. That's the perfect uh, test market. Exactly. They, the most honest people in the world when it comes to food <laughs> are what they like and don't like. Um, yeah. And uh, before this, I mean, originally I started my adult life as a Navy pilot. I was a, uh, went to Vanderbilt on ROTC scholarship and became a helicopter pilot. Flew in the Navy for eight, eight and a half years, um, ended up getting stationed in England for my shore duty, uh, working counterterrorism there, and then uh, moved on. And while I was there, I was lucky enough to get my MBA at London Business School. Um, and that encouraged me to get out um, <clears throat> and try new things. Um, and then, but I uh, made a terrible <laughs> decision. Uh, timing is everything. So I'd never leave the military right as a gigantic, the, biggest recession in the last hundred years starts. So that's what I did in 2008. I left wow, the military. Yeah, that's that's right a great in. year. <laughs> yeah, good year to yeah. choose. That's right. Yeah. And we were in London. So that was like ground zero of the if you thought it was bad economic US, collapse. That's yeah. exactly right. London was worse. And um, so my MBA was worth about zero zilch and nobody gave a crap. I wanted to hire anybody that had eight years of you know being in the military, um, especially not in Europe. They really mm. just didn't care. So, um, you know, I ended up uh, using my experience in emerging markets and ended up just, you know, working in emerging markets and innovation for a few years. So we lived overseas and I lived in Bulgaria and then uh, by myself and then moved my whole family over to uh, the Middle East um, for four years. We lived in Doha, Qatar for four years. And from there, I, I traveled a lot to different places where I picked up odd jobs, tried all kinds of different things, um, <clears throat> made a little bit of money. And uh, then we... Finally moved back here in 2013 because uh, I got hired by a charity um, as a, an entrepreneur because they needed somebody who could launch products from post-conflict areas. And I was that mm. kind of person who could go to Eastern Uganda and set up a deal to buy coffee from a cooperative in Eastern Uganda that had never sold coffee to the U.S. before and import it and brand it and get it out to the market. And so um, <clears throat> that's actually what got me into food. When I saw what was happening with the food industry and how everything was, the market was shifting and the big guys weren't keeping up and there was a real market opportunity, um, I got excited and, you know, jumped in myself. So. It's interesting. You, you mentioned kind of the coffee area of, you know, in Uganda. I mean, that really, that Uganda, um, uh, Rwanda is kind of an emerging market for coffee, isn't it? I mean, did you, yeah. you there on kind of the leading edge of, of that region? I mean, it's, it's a beautiful part of the, part of the world. But, oh, it's um, amazing. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, what was really cool is, uh, yeah, Rwanda had a, has a much more developed coffee industry than Uganda. Uganda, ironically, has uh, developed like a, a, there's two types of coffee beans, Robusta and um, Arabica. Most mm -hmm. people drink Arabica, you know, it's a higher end coffee. Um, the ones that are, Arabica is grown at altitude in mountains, typically. Um, but Uganda and their lowlands has actually developed a really developed uh, Robusta um, uh, coffee farms. Um, but they hadn't developed um, the Arabica side. And they share Mount Elgon in the eastern <coughs> part of Uganda with Kenya. And on the Kenyan side, there's amazing coffees coming out that are, you know, cost a ton of money because it's a volcanic soil and right, yeah. amazing, um, <coughs> amazing environment for coffee. And in the Uganda side, they really hadn't developed it at all. And it had been a really depressed area. A lot of uh, post, a lot of conflict um, post EDA meeting during Idi Amin mm -hmm. rain, and then that just lasted for years afterwards. That really tore it up. Um, and it's far from Kampala and things like this. So um, luckily it wasn't in the north where they had most of the conflict with the LRA. But you don't want to get into too much Uganda stuff. But yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that's a, that's just one small window in your in your yeah. bio that right. we talked about a little bit off camera. But uh, yeah, I I mean I'm really interested in just the kind of the whole transition. So um, I mean, it's a, it's amazing. Is it, what's the, the saying that says, uh, what invention is the, or the necessity is the mother of invention or something right. like that, 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 so it sounded like out of almost desperation for, for work, you know, mm -hmm. some of these things were born into, you know, kind of your experience in your, your work career. So yeah. walk us through that transition a little bit. Yeah. I mean, basically, um, early on, like coming out, you know, you, you get you go to the, one of these top flight MBA programs, and they they treat you they teach you great stuff and things like this. But one of the things they do is they build you up to think that like, oh, you with your MBA, you're going to be able to do anything. You're walking any job, and da, da. and I mean that's just not really accurate because they're graduating. You know, Harvard graduate, graduates a thousand people a year, right? Mm. So you yeah. know, we were graduating four hundred people a year at London Business School and things like this. And so there's only that so many top flight jobs and um, and really, if you don't know what you want to do, um, it's not super easy to just walk into something. And at the end of the day, most big HR company, HR departments still look at your background, you know, more than anything else. Yeah. Um, so, and I didn't have a good plan. And then getting into the, 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 the getting out in the recession, um, basically I learned early on, or at least it got ingrained in me that I had to make my own way. You know, I couldn't just rely on finding a job or going through the job search. I also never really got good at it either. So <laughs> I think that was, and I had such a terrible experience with it, you know, early on that like uh, it just kind of forced me to kind of really focus on kind of building my own, you know, income and building my own career. And so sure. What drove me into this. Um, yeah. Now were you at Lake and Heath in, in, uh, in England or were you in London or where were you stationed? I was actually at the at the Jack um, Jack Molesworth, the Joint Analysis Center, RAF Molesworth. So it was about um, the same different distance from Cambridge, on but uh, uh, west of Cambridge. Well, Lake Neath is east of Cambridge. Okay. So we, lived, we lived in Cambridge, and then uh, yeah, RAF Molesworth is actually it's an uh, intel base for the U.S. European Command. So it's a weird place. Luckily, they had three slots. Um, when I was leaving the squadron, you know, I told my skipper um, I wanted to go back overseas because just I loved, you know, being in the thick of it. And 
<clears throat> my wife, who was my fiance at the time, said she, she was getting out of the Navy and she wanted to get a grad degree. So she wanted to go somewhere where she could get a grad degree. So I asked my skipper, you know, maybe if you could get London um, and Navier, uh, Naval Forces Europe, which used to be in London, which was a sweet deal, was just shutting down then and moving to Italy. So I missed out on that, but my skipper was amazing. And, you know, I was one of the top pilots. So he would, you know, he pushed for me. So he found this job at this Intel base. And uh, so I ran operations at this Intel base for, you know, three years. And so that was pretty amazing. Uh, and this was, was 08 great... to 11 about? Oh, no, this was earlier. This was uh, 04 to 07, 08. Okay. All right. It's interesting because from 05 to 12, we were 30 minutes south of London. So no, no way. yeah, we were, uh, we were well within a, a driver nine iron of where you lived. So yeah. <laughs> it was, it, yeah, I've been, been through that, that area many times, but, uh, yeah. so you, you got your MBA right at the height of the recession. And then, you know, as one does, you moved to the middle East. So how in the world did that, did that opportunity even arise? And, I mean, I think it's thinking like I read somewhere you you created a company is it Doha Delivery or something like that or yeah yeah so walk well, us we, through uh, that a little bit. We uh, well first we moved back after the Bulgaria thing. Um, we moved back to the U.S. and um, my wife got a job um, with the Rand Corporation in Northern Virginia here in Arlington, um, and uh, so we were we were living here briefly, but um, I didn't have a job. We had two kids. We had still had school loans. Um, and the job she got just doesn't, did not pay very well, um, as an analyst. My wife is highly educated, um, and, but she works in public policy, so highly educated and poorly paid, right? Yeah. So like, yeah. um. And you live in an expensive part of the country. Yeah, and a terribly so a expensive perfect part. storm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and the recession was still, you know, it was like 09 at that point, and the recession was still pretty bad. Yeah. So, um, and I had given up my security clearance to go work in Bulgaria, so, you know, there was no. Uh, yeah, I wasn't getting back into the industry. Um, so, yeah, I started working and focusing on emerging markets and um, grants and contracts and developing contracts with in emerging markets. And I formed a small company and um, we ended up winning, uh, partnered with a few people and I ended up winning a contract in Egypt and a contract in Ghana. And uh, right around then, actually, my wife's um, discovered that her firm at the time had an office in Doha in Qatar. And uh, she got nominated to, to, to fill a role there. And we were like, you know what? <clears throat> you know, tax-free, free of like, you know, they give us a housing allowance there, yeah. all this kinds of yeah. stuff, you know, um, increase yeah. in benefits. Let's do it. amazing benefits. So I was like, let's do it. I'm going to be flying to Egypt and Ghana anyway. So like I can do that from anywhere. Yeah, it's a lot shorter fly from there than it is from here. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, and so we moved over there and, uh, yeah, while we were there, we moved there in 2010 and, um, that was right when, Do uh, 2010, that, um, just about a year into, uh, us moving there, they won the, uh, world cup for 2022 Yeah, yeah that's right. and everything at the time seemed like, Oh my God, Doha is exploding. Qatar is really growing. It's going to mm -hmm. be next Dubai, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, but there was, it was still very undeveloped. And so, you know, with an entrepreneurial mindset, you're just like going crazy thinking about all the things and possibilities. And so I just jumped in and like one of the first things I did was we realized, okay, we can't, there's almost no websites even at the time. Like you couldn't find anything online, any information. And, uh, you know, 
delivery was huge there. Food delivery mm-hmm. was a gigantic thing in the Middle East. And um, you couldn't find the menus online. You couldn't even find the restaurants online. They didn't even have websites. Mostly. No Uber Eats, no Grubhub, yeah. no. <laughs> Nothing like that. And so we, <clears throat> so initially I just started putting menus, grabbing menus and putting them online, creating a database and just putting them online and stuff like that. And then we, you know, so we created a website, Doha Delivery, and then I contracted out with these uh, Polish developers and we started turning it into something real. And we started creating, you know, online ordering, things mm-hmm. like that, um, figuring out ways for the restaurants to work and fit. Um, we were the one of the most popular websites in Doha for quite a few years there. Um, and we're still ranked really high in SEO. Um, and it's just, it was just, uh, it was an amazing opportunity. But the, um, but you really have to look at the whole thing. It's really difficult because um, there's no addresses, right? There's no Absolutely. <laughs> Welcome there's to no, the Middle East. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think people realize in the U.S. like how easy we have it here with things like, you know, yeah. like a fixed address or even zip codes and stuff like this. And, you know, there, there are no addresses, no zip codes. I mean, so how do you map these things for the drivers? You know, um, really difficult. There's no, there were no online payment systems. Like PayPal was banned in Doha. Like if you wanted to do it in Qatar Reals or things like this. Um, looking back, I could have set up something with like an offshore account and taken dollars and figured things out and like mm-hmm. transferred money, but I'm not sure it was been worth it. Um, and you know, a lot, uh, we got amazing traffic from them, from the, uh, customer side. A lot of people are on our site all the time, ordering things like that or using, using our menus. Um, but the restaurants were really slow to adopt it. Mm. And you know, that's where you make your money is getting the restaurants. To yeah. pay, right. And so, that was, it was a real struggle. The restaurants were really slow to adopt it. They were very um, wary of anything different or new or any type of new technology. Um, you know, the, the managers were not the owners in any way, shape, or form. You know, the owners were off doing their own things. Right. Right. All they wanted to do was just keep their jobs. And that just meant doing, you know, day-to-day stuff. And they were, you know, they just didn't understand it. They'd never seen it before, um, things like this. So... But it was really difficult to convert the restaurants on, and that was kind of our ultimate thing. Um, looking back, if I, I should have actually put more time, effort, and money into this, because um, a year or two after we left, online ordering kind of finally reached the Middle East and exploded, and there were a bunch of acquisitions, and we probably could have been swept up, you know, easily could have swept up by mm-hmm. somebody trying to get yep. in there if we had. Um, but I was always, it's, it's a terrible, online ordering is a terrible business model. I mean, the margins are tiny. You have mm-hmm. to get so much volume. Doha is a really small market. Um, uh, you know, at the time the country only had 2 million people and over, no, it only had a million people. I think we were living there and over half of them were, uh, migrant workers, you know, who aren't online. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so it was a really small market and, uh, you know, so it really wasn't justifiable necessarily as a business on its own, but like we still probably could have gotten acquired and probably done okay uh-huh. uh, if if I had just put in. So that's a lesson to be learned right there. It's really hard to tell these types of things, right? You know, and yeah, where where yeah. to put your effort or your time. It's it's really interesting. I mean, just my my personal experience of of being in places you know outside the U.S. I mean, you know, the entrepreneurial mindset is almost like a unicorn outside. I mean, it is, it is so prevalent here in the States versus, you know, you talked about this, the, you know, the restaurant managers or whatever were slow to adopt or whatever. Actually, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I remember our times in the UK when we were like, we would go into shops and, you know, be completely ignored or, you know, and you're like going, 
it's, isn't your business to sell things? <laughs> you know, yeah, you know, we're here with, with cash to buy something and you're, uh, you're, you're almost they, acting like it's an inconvenience. Or you know, they, they close at 5 PM in the UK and they'll like, absolutely everything shuts down. they're like locking the door, <laughs> yes, like not letting you as in. you're walking up, yeah, you know, with yeah. cash, showing them cash. They're, so they're ready to buy something. Yeah. I, yeah. I'll tell you a very, very quick story about our time in the UK. We were, uh, my my boss, who was also an American, was in walking to or going into a mattress store to buy a mattress, and and uh, they had just moved to the UK. And he said, uh, "Yeah, we want we want this mattress." And the guy said, "Well, the only one we have is this display model," and he said, "That's fine, we'll take it." You know, and he said, "Well, if I sell that one to you, I won't have one." <laughs> and it's like uh, we thought that was the point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, the whole, you know. I mean, I love my Brit, my Brit cousins, my Brit brothers, but uh, yeah, it is a different mindset for sure. Yeah. It's a, certainly a different mindset. But so, you know, cycle through. You, you go through Cutter. You're you're back in the states. What was the transition back? And and was it a, a job change for your wife, or what was the what was kind of the story? And how did you end up back here? And then walk us through you know, how you get from delivering food to making ketchup? Well, I mean, and, and we were just finally getting really frustrated with Doha, this need to get out. And so that's why we, we left. Uh, Plus it's hot. Yeah. <laughs> there was a, I mean, we still have some great friends there. A lot of cutlery, I did cutlery business partner. She was amazing. Um, you know, she ended up going to MIT Sloan. Um, and now she almost runs stuff there back there. But um you know, really amazing people there and things like that. Um, a lot of great friends that we're going to have for lifetimes, but it's, it's a, people don't realize it, it's a very dangerous place in the Middle East and not like what most Americans think. It's not really the terrorism dangerous. Mm -hmm. It's like the driving is dangerous. Like, mm. you know, the driving is insane. And when you have small kids, it can get really frantic. I mean, it's just constant stress from that. Uh, the construction is really bad. So there were fires all the time. Yeah. Like, um, there was a major fire in a, in the, a mall there um and a nursery school um a bunch of kids died in the mm. nursery in the in the fire and it's all you know bad regulate no regulations no fire codes no things like this and you know it, again we take people complain about government regular i will never complain about government regulations again after living in the middle east like you know yeah. <clears throat> you, you know you don't we don't realize how good we have it having this political bureaucracy over us like things like yeah. that yeah, it can be annoying, but it, trust me, it keeps you alive. Sure. It's, it's sure. kind of like what we uh, used to say when we were pilots, like our our, uh, our NATOPs, our instructional manuals written in blood, right? It was, mm. you know, we, have, we have all these instructions and these huge instructional manuals and regulations because people died. And, yeah. you know, I think that ha you know, we see that a lot, even here in the U.S. in business and stuff like that. Somebody died sometimes to make that regulation. Mm. And... Uh, it may not be right, make it may can be improved, but like it trust me, it's better than seeing nineteen kids die of smoke inhalation in the mall. For sure. So um but yeah, that was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. We were like, you know, we had small thick kids. Our daughter was born over there, so we had three kids at the time and we were like, okay, we need to get back to the US. Mm -hmm. So so that's what brought us back really at the end of the day. Uh, and that was about when and and kind of walk through the the transition of how you, you started your true made foods here. Yeah, so that was, um, two, uh, when was that? That was 2013, we moved back, summer of okay. 2013. Um, and <clears throat> I started inter interviewing, you know, looking around for jobs in the D.C. market. And uh, so I, you know, I picked up the job with the charity, because um, that seemed like the most exciting prospect. Um, and that got me into the food thing. 
um, what happened with True Made Foods is about a year into launching the coffee, um, right when we finally like launched the coffee, things are going really well. The coffee started making, we made like the first $20,000 in sales in the first month. And then uh, the charity ran out of money. <laughs> they would burn through their, uh, um, all their cash and they didn't have a good fundraising strategy. And so um, the coffee was doing well, but not enough to support the charity. Right? Sure. And yeah. so they, uh, so they let everybody go. And so at that point I was uh, really frustrated because I just poured my heart and soul into launching something, mm-hmm. you know, when you get, you're that type of person who just like loves building these things up and launching, you, you really get wrapped up in it. And then you realize, you know what, it's not yours, you know, and uh, somebody could just take it away from you and fire you. And so um, that's really what kind of pushed me to, because I figured when you really go do something crazy like through Made Foods and really start a new food company or something like that, you have to be a little bit nuts, um, a little bit nuts or have a lot of money. And uh, like, I was definitely a little bit nuts and it was, you know, getting fired that really kind of pushed me over the edge and kind of think, said, you know, I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm just going to drive it again. Kind of, kind of building out from like you know having to deal with the recession and you know years of you know coming out of the military into the recession, you know, <clears throat> kind of drove it home for me. Okay, I, I can only really rely on myself. So, how did you specifically decide what you were going to? So, did you think, okay, generally I'm going to be in the food space, and then just specifically this just kind of had an epiphany one day? I mean, what what was that? Kind of drill down a little bit on that. Yeah, it was kind of um, everything just kind of happened it kind of came together uh i i wanted to stay in the food space initially i just you know spent a year becoming an expert quote unquote in coffee right and uh, so i thought you know maybe i should stay in coffee and i was looking at that and um then uh this guy i had a co-founder initially and he uh i met him years before and then he, he got back in touch with me and he said he had tried to launch uh, something similar, but it had failed miserably. And it's, um, but when he told me about the idea of putting veg- vegetables in ketchup, it set off a light for me because I was like, that's a brilliant idea. Because as a parent, this was one of my biggest problems. Um, I hated ketchup. I thought it's, it's, red, it's red corn syrup. It's terrible for you. It's got more sugar than ice cream, ounce per ounce. Wow. Ketchup, ketchup and barbecue sauce. Um, are like one of the, the two worst things. And sriracha, hoi fung sriracha is more sugar than ketchup. These, those condiments in your refrigerator are probably some of the worst things in your refrigerator. Most barbecue sauces have more sugar than soda, ounce per ounce. Mm-hmm. And uh, all ketchup and sriracha have more sugar than ice cream, ounce per ounce. Um, it's terrible for you. Um, but, and so I you know, had these dreams of being the parent whose kids didn't eat ketchup, um, high ambitions, and that failed miserably um yeah and my kids were eating ketchup all the time and of course we grill out we cook we love going to barbecue restaurants like we we're going to barbecue almost every other week it's a big part of our life uh we're not going to give that up and we're we grill constantly and stuff like that we always cook out with family mm-hmm. and everything and so trying to you know fix this and you can buy better meat you can cook things healthier you can have healthy side dishes but if somebody's pouring ketchup and crappy barbecue sauce all over anything it's just ruining it so for me that was a personal thing for me like it was just a huge thing and then i grew up cooking with an italian mother who taught me to cook early on as the oldest child to help out and uh, so i grew up learning how to make pasta sauce with carrots as a natural sweetener and my mom always said uh lazy italians use sugar so <clears throat> like i learned early on that veggies can be a natural sweetener as a parent i've always like tried to hide veggies 
into everything my kids eat anyway. And so this just, everything kind of came together when I heard about this idea about putting uh, veggies in ketchup. I was like, well, if carrots work for pasta sauce, it could work for ketchup as well. And, you know, luckily it did. Uh, uh, the guy I started the company with, like, he didn't know how to cook. He was a disaster. Um, and uh, he, uh, so I had to take the idea and kind of push it in the right direction and get it going. Um, and then that's how, you know, we, we initially developed and started the, the, the products that way. And then we've been working with a food scientist. So as soon as I was able to raise a little bit of money, I hired a food scientist um, mm -hmm. to help us, you know, really kind of take it to the next level because, you really need some type of expertise to really take things out of the kitchen and make it make them more scalable recipes, things like that. So, so now I don't have to do any experimenting anymore. I can just kind of come up with the concepts, um, experiment a little bit on my own, and then you know, work with the food scientists, and she can figure out how to make it into a, you know, they take that concept and turn it into a scalable recipe. Right now, it's it's one thing to to kind of come up with a with a new idea, new healthy alternative to a condiment or whatever. It's a whole other thing to kind of carve out some space in the in the shelves of a, a yeah. Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or something like that, or even the, the average supermarket. You know, I'm sure Heinz and and Hunts and and the big boys are going. Uh, now we we don't really want your little ketchup substitute here in our space. So how do you battle the big boys? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, well, you've got to pick your space up. Luckily, you know, again, everything's moving in this direction. So mm -hmm. um, stores, stores are looking, buyers say they're, they're looking for new, better products. They're looking to capture that, that consumer, you know, and capture more dollar baskets to that consumer. Um, Grocery is for good and bad. Grocery is in complete upheaval in the United States. Like there's a complete revolution going on out there, um, and grocery stores are trying to figure out what to do. They don't know what's happening. Um, it's really what's happening is, uh, and this is good and bad. It's good because it's creating this opportunity as, as an entrepreneur because the market is changing. Um, it's bad because we still rely on this infrastructure to sell our products, mm -hmm. and like it's in complete upheaval, right? So things are changing all the time. Um, uh, and so that makes things harder sometimes right. to, to get on the shelf. Cause like, you know, you could have a buyer saying they want to get you on the shelf and then all of a sudden they realize, you know what, we need, we need to shore up our margins or something like that. And so we're getting rid of all, all small, new, small products that aren't mm. making yeah. money, you know, or aren't paying us as much to be on the shelf. Cause you have to pay to be on the shelf a lot of times. Right. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, you have to kind of, um, and that also means your sales strategy is much more difficult. Like um, from the very early on, um, our advisors and stuff like that said, okay, you need a sales strategy. You need to focus. Okay, this is where you can go, either either channel or region. Um, the channel sales strategy used to always be, used to be when you launched a food company, you, know, you started in your local health food stores and then Whole Foods, and you kind of built out through Whole Foods, you know, into a region and then nationally. And then you could start expanding out into more conventional stores like your Safeways and Kroger's yeah. and stuff like that. Um, Whole Foods, the last few years, even before the Amazon acquisition, really kind of changed that. They were changing everything. They were making it much more difficult. They kept changing where the buying was done. Right before the Amazon acquisition, they were changing um, constantly between buying regionally or buying in Austin, mm -hmm. you know, where the decisions were being made. Um, and now much more of the decisions are made in Austin, too, uh, at the headquarters. So going Whole Foods first is really a much more difficult channel strategy yeah. anymore. Um, so 
<clears throat> you have to figure out something new. Uh, we made huge mistakes. I made huge mistakes early on just trying to get sales anywhere. Um, and everybody tells you not to do that. I still did it because I thought, you know, ego, I thought we could, we could, we could weather the storm and make it through. And plus I was just so determined to build sales and mm -hmm. uh, make the product work. Um, and, uh, so we ended up getting kicked out of a lot of stores early on, really almost killed the company a couple times. Um, I really should have, you know, uh, we went into some bad stores that were not right, good fits for us, mm -hmm. things like this. Um, and yeah, we didn't, hadn't tested out the design and the packaging and the labeling enough. And really that really almost killed us. And uh, so we've had to uh, <clears throat> reassess <clears throat> and then we just focused on region instead. So we developed a channel, a strategy just for, I developed a strategy focusing on our region. So we focused kind of the mid Atlantic and Northeast, mm -hmm. um, and kind of built there. Um, cause then <clears throat> even if you go into say like a safe, like we went to Safeway up here in the DC area and you know, there's going to be problems The shelves aren't always going to be filled. Things aren't going to be put out all that kind of stuff, but you can reach all those stores when you're close to it. Right. Right. Or your right. home region. Yeah. I can go around and check the stores, make sure things are going okay. You can build it up. You can build up um, enough demand to get this stuff selling off the shelves. You can really support it. Um, <clears throat> and then we slowly expanded out to the Midwest. And now we're finally going national and expanding nationally. Um, so we launched Sprouts last year, which really took us national. And uh, Walmart launched us in 1,200 stores as well. And so with uh, one of our SKUs, just to catch up. And uh, mm -hmm. <clears throat> so we've been growing that like crazy and uh, now we're going full national and trying to get as many stores as possible um, because we've seen it work and we've kind of gotten it down and we're about to launch a new label too which we think um, will help even more so that's uh, a pretty pretty uh i mean i in this the short period of time you've talked uh you know that you which since you've launched this i mean it looks like a kind of an upwardly curving hockey stick there on your on your growth chart i mean if you, especially, you know, to break into a Walmart at that level, um, you know, it's, mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's a, that's a pretty broad range of stores for them. I mean, it's not like a 50 store test market or something like right. that. And, um, as you were talking, I was, I was wondering about, um, did you have to educate your market or has the market matured enough, you know, with the, with the advent of, you know, people wanting organic and they're wanting, you know, locally sourced and, and no sugar farm to table or no sugars and whatever. I mean, or is it just kind of like, did you hit this Kairos moment that, you know, it's the, the, the a mature market or a ready market and, and you had a good product fit? Uh, it's kind of both. Um, I mean, we were, we, we screwed up early on by just having really fancy looking labels or, um, that uh, didn't call out our, our different, our differentiation. Mm -hmm you know, why we were better with the extra veggies in it or the low sugar, no sugar and, um, focusing, trying to get that message right on a still without making the label too busy has been our challenge for the last um, four years. I think we, our new labels for 2020, I think we finally got it mm -hmm. now. Um, <clears throat> and also figuring out what that hierarchy is and, uh, and that changes with what's happening in the market. Um, so I think early on, and still one of our challenges is that people don't realize that ketchup is such a problem, like it's how unhealthy it is, right? Yeah. Or they think it's, you know, it's just a condiment, so who cares, right? But, you know, if you're a family who buys a bottle of ketchup a month, you're eating um, 150 donuts worth of sugar a year, like, um, and that's that much sugar wow. just going through one bottle of ketchup a month. And <clears throat> so... 
So, but we still have that problem where people think it's it's not a big deal or they don't know. You know, it's not as um, prevalent. Uh, so there's an education piece on that, but it's happening. It's starting mm-hmm. to happen. Um, and what we saw, uh, there was other competitors that started to come out that did no sugar ketchup. So there's some, you know, um, artificial sweetener ketchups. Heinz has one. There's another one out there. And they really started to explode um, the artificial sweetener ketchups just because they were able to say no sugar on the front. Right. But it's, and, it's not any better. I mean, right. No, matter of fact, it's probably even, probably might even worse. be worse for you. <laughs> might yeah, even be right. worse for you. Right. Um, but you know, if you're diabetic or your, your diet, your mm-hmm. doctor tells you not to eat that, um, eat, need, you need to cut out sugar. You see that you don't read the label, you buy it. Um, so that showed me that there is this huge demand for it. And because us as a completely natural product where we're getting all our sweetness just from things like carrots and butternut squash, mm-hmm. you know, so it's much healthier for you on so many different levels. Uh, I thought, you know, if we can weather this and get through and really start to create a shelf presence, we'll, we'll, we are going to, all that money that I see them making right now, all those um, sales dollars are going to be moving over to our brand. Right. And so, right. um, <clears throat> that was where we needed. That's how I've been focused. Like that. That's it's a it's an amazing strategy, and and I mean, if you could ever educate the market, it, it would almost be a no brainer decision on their part. I mean, if, if those are the two alternatives that they had, so um, at, a, at least yeah. from a you know untrained eye like mine, I mean, just looking at the two options. But I, I wanted to ask you. So I mean, I, I I can tell that this is not just a business that you're not just you know selling widgets. You know, to people. So, the, I mean, there is a there's a, a passion behind this that and a and a drive behind this. I mean, so what would you say, really, if you want to define your why? You know, as Simon Sinek would say, what is your why as it relates to this this business? Yeah, our why is happy families. You know, as a dad, I got four kids now. Like, and I think a big problem with the food industry really. Big pro- there's a big problem with the conventional food industry is they try to sell you America and, but they're selling you poison, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the Coca-Cola commercials, the Heinz commercials, they're <clears throat> trying to sell you like this happy America thing and they show healthy, you know, people and stuff like this, but they're selling you straight poison. Like, mm-hmm. and they're just kill they're killing people, <clears throat> but you know, they're, they're making um, America less competitive, you know, sugar, all this stuff, obesity makes you dumb and makes you slow makes you um makes it so a majority of americans can't even qualify for military service anymore mm, yeah um yeah this, this is a major problem so that's that's on one side and then i see the natural products industry um <clears throat> like focusing on completely on the 24 year old instagrammer right you know and not thinking about families making things completely inconvenient for kids or families things like this make or <clears throat> just uh whitewashing things and just sticking sugar, you know, saying, okay, it's natural, but you know, we, it's cause we use organic sugar. Like, I'm sorry, it's still just, it's still just as bad for you. So these, right. these are two things that were really frustrating me. And it was really frustrating me that, you know, you take your kids to, um, <clears throat> whether it's their school lunches or you take it out to, you know, you have a, a, a baseball game or, um, a church picnic or anything or any type of a fundraiser for the, the little league. And it's all terrible food. And or the Friday night, the concessions at the Friday night football game, it's all terrible food. It's the cheapest food that the boosters could buy, you know, <clears throat> and it's just, you know, it's all sugar, it's all poison. And 
you know, it doesn't have to be that way. Like you can make super healthy, great food. We always used to have it. Doesn't and you can still have this comfort food um, without having to have everything loaded with sugar and corn syrup. Um, and that's you know my big challenge is like I want to get back to that type of America. Maybe it's mm -hmm. like it's our um, our great grandparents' America when it comes to food, you yeah. know, kind of thing. Um, yeah, if I looked at, yeah, my great grandmother was from uh, Luray, Virginia. Um, and so most of my dad's, she was in the household when my dad was growing up. So most, and was always the cook. And so like the, most of my dad's influence comes from um, her cooking and all her recipes. There's a lot of pork fat and a lot of butter, but there is no sugar in anything that's not a dessert. And the amount of sugar in the desserts is like a fraction of what you would see mm -hmm. sugar in the dessert recipes you see. Yeah. Um, cause it was expensive back then. Sugar was expensive. It was a rarity. It was a quantity. It was something you treated as a, you know, a, 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 a luxury, a, a luxury. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, vegetables were everywhere. They were growing mm -hmm. them in the garden stuff like that. They were cooking, you know, sweet potatoes and carrots and everything were in everything. Um, <clears throat> and so I think we want to go back to that. I mean, I look at barbecue and barbecue should not be unhealthy for you. It is you're eating, especially like real barbecue, when you're eating the pork shoulder or brisket or something like that, it has a lot of collagen in it, which people are buying in, you know, in powder form and eating every day, taking in drinks and stuff like this. Because it's other, you know, so the natural form of collagen comes in barbecue when you're, and that's where the flavor comes from, from in barbecue. And why you have to smoke it for so long is because it's hard to cook that. So you have to smoke it low and slow to get mm -hmm. that flavor out. So barbecue is a natural, you know, natural source of collagen. The real ingredients for real barbecue are mainly things like apple cider vinegar, which people are drinking on a regular basis. Yeah, for absolutely. Yeah. Uh, turmeric, you know, sage, all these healthy spices, you know, mm -hmm. um, sea salt, things, kinds of things, black pepper, red pepper, uh, all these things that people are eating and say all these, you know, natural health and benefits. supplements and supplements. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, um, and really, and garlic and stuff like that. And this is the type of thing that, you know, so barbecue used to be actually a very healthy food. It's very common, like easy food. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it only got ruined with the, uh, with all the sugar that's mm -hmm. been poured on all of it. And now, you know, barbecue sauces and barbecue rubs are almost all sugar. And which means you're not tasting the barbecue. You're just tasting the sugar because it overwhelms all your uh, right. sugar, overwhelms all your other tastes. So yeah, I'm very passionate about changing this in America and getting us back to a place where we can appreciate real food. Um, as somebody who always grew up like in a household where we cooked everything and you know grew stuff and stuff like that, like we, um, I've always been you know shocked and surprised with the amount of crap people eat and not understanding how healthy food actually tastes better when it's done mm -hmm. right, you know. Yeah. So, um, and how it should be the Americana of the world, you know, healthy food should be what is American, not Coca-Cola and Heinz, you right. know, Coca-Cola and Heinz right. should be seen as the enemy of America right now. And That's so, a great marketing, marketing, <laughs> uh, job they've done, you know, McDonald's has yeah. sold us the. Yeah, know, they're, they're like the, the most American thing. Big know. Mac. <laughs> yeah, and they're they're killing, literally killing us. Like mm -hmm. you know, making us less safe. You know, because you know, and they put there's on every Navy base in America there's a McDonald's. Yeah. You know, and that's you know hurting our national security, right? Because it makes these people, the the men and women who are serving in the military, less capable. Yep. Like we, you know, and that is that's a major problem. And that these are the type of things that I want to change. So you know. This is not the country I want my kids to be. Right. Of. 
Right. Well, I'm curious on this, uh, where I'm headed with this, because I, I think I know the answer to this question, but uh, I, I, I never want to put words in, in our guest's mouth. But uh, if you had to start tomorrow, what would you do? If, you, if this was gone and you were starting again tomorrow, what would be, if, you know, just to help some of the listeners out there thinking about, what well, I'm going to start something, what would you do and what would be maybe two or three really quick foundational steps you would take to kind of get the ball rolling? Uh, number one, I, I would have found a better co-founder. So and that can be, that can cost you so much time, energy and money. You make sure you get the right people on your team. Yeah. Partner with the right things like this. Yeah. Um, and we, I've found great partners now that I'm working with right now who are amazing people. Um, I wish I had started with them from the beginning. Um, uh, like Ed and Ryan Mitchell, um, our barbecue sauce partners down in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Um, and Vanessa, who works with us here on our website, she's amazing. Um, I wish they had been my founders and not my initial founder. Um, get the right people on board. Um, and then, <clears throat> actually, to be honest, is like um, prepare for things to take longer than you, than need to be, and don't raise money too early. Um, you know, again, I think I try to go too fast, too hard. Um, and a little bit of too much ego right there coming off of being fired, you know, probably was, you know, that, um, which drove me that to that, that level, trying to grow too fast. Um, take some time to really figure it out. Uh, test, take extra time to test out the idea and, and get things right. And before you really start to put the accelerator down, you know, because if you start putting the accelerator down when the product's not, you know, too red, not really ready, um, you can make a mistake. And I think part of that's kind of the entrepreneurial culture we had over the last 10 years of kind of like the um, build fast and break things. Sure. Kind yeah. of stuff. That lean startup um, mentality. Yeah. The whole, yeah. Like, yeah. Know, lean startup yeah. That, I mean, you, that can go, that can be used the wrong way. I mean, I still, mm-hmm. it's, there's still great lessons there. And obviously, you know, the MVP is a great lesson and I'm still saying to do that. Um, the key is just don't start putting, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars behind your MVP right away. You know, right. Take the time to get it right before you really start. Leveling. So. Is it the, the issue is the problem with the, with raising funds too fast? Is it the, is it the fact that you give a portion of your equity away too early? Is it, you don't have a test of the market. You're too far and you get, you spend it too quickly. You're wasting money. What's the, what's the issue around don't raise funds too quickly? Yeah. The problem with raising money too fast or too early is that the second you take somebody's money, you are on a timeline. Mm. Second you take investment, you're on a timeline. You have got to hit metrics. You've got to raise your sales so you can increase your valuation, you know, Um, so that when you, when you need to raise money again. And so then you're almost under too much pressure to spend money. You know what I mean? And to chase sales that might not be right for the company or when you're not ready to chase sales. And uh, or try to push, spend money marketing and pushing something that you know isn't ready to sell, and you can waste a lot of money on marketing trying to push a product that isn't quite ready for the market yet. Yeah, that that, that is a great, that is really great advice. And I, I mean, I kind of love the just the foundational steps that you, you know, kind of gave us about you know choosing well when you're when you're going into partnership or who your co-founders are. Uh, you know, be prepared; it's going to take longer than than expected. You know, don't raise funds and don't raise nor or spend funds too early and too quickly. And then really the last one is just really take the time to test the idea. 
really mm-hmm. test it well and and really know your know your product, know your market, you know how be, they be fit your together. Worst critic. Yeah. Absolutely be your worst critic. So yeah. and I love that and and uh so but you would think you think that if you started tomorrow you would be in kind of the health food space. Yeah, so if I <laughs> This industry is very hard. Um, it's been a, an eye-opening. It looks easy from the outside. Well, it doesn't look easy, but it looks uh, easier from the outside. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I do uh, love it though. Like I really do. Like I just get um, super passionate about it, which is probably bad. I think there are much better spaces to be in tech seems to be, you know, the valuations are higher. You can raise more money without ever having to have sales, you know, things like that. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, and so many that you know, if you're in cybersecurity or something like that, you know, so many different options. Yeah, it's a little easier than, than a new sure. new ketchup alternative. Right. Yeah, I, I want to ask you, does so did your product have to taste like what we expect ketchup to taste like for it to be? Or yeah. that's, I mean, I wouldn't be doing this. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now if our ketchups didn't taste as close to as possible to a conventional Heinz ketchup. Yeah, admit that they own the, that piece. There's, there's even like when we started, what I found is there was a uh, 2010 article written by Malcolm Gladwell um, called the Ketchup, Ketchup Conundrum, and it talked about why there's m- multiple different types of mustard and only one ketchup, right? And it's because ketchup has become just this one flavor profile. And if mm. you too far for that play, flavor profile, it doesn't taste like ketchup, and people don't think it's ketchup, right? And so. Um, so from the very beginning, you know, if we didn't have a product that tasted just like ketchup, um, or tasted close, so close to the ideal ketchup, um, you know, I, I would never would have done this. Um, and that's actually what kept me going even through the times when we screwed up and I, we failed, um, is I knew that we had a really good product and, mm-hmm. that, and I was always kind of product first, um, kind of person, yeah. um, which instead of marketing first, um, and, uh, so that's really kind of what kept me going is kept the passion going through the hard times that is I knew we had a really good product with a really good opportunity. Um, yeah. And again, like, you know, I tested it on five-year-olds on little kids and stuff yeah. like that. And, you know, they are obviously for something like this for, for ketchup, they are the best um, uh, taste testers or testers. You know, no doubt you. about it. We've, we've come full circle in the, in the chat today. We started out with the five-year-old test market and we circled back, back to, to the same, same right. focus group that we had before. So tell our listeners where your products can be found. And, and is it, I mean, it's not primarily on the Eastern seaboard anymore. I'm assuming right. that it's kind of made its way across the country and possibly even some international destinations, but uh, tell me, tell us where you, that we can find it and, and maybe specifically outline what, what the products specifically are. Yeah. So our company is True Made Foods. And if you go to truemadefoods.com, you can see most of our stores there and, and that where we're sold. And we sell online. And uh, we, if you go to amazon.com backslash truemadefoods, you can see our Amazon store. Okay. Um, and then we are, um, the big stores that we're in, we, our low sugar ketchup is carried in Walmart and 1200 Walmarts. We're in um, uh, Sprouts carries our low sugar and no sugar ketchup and our barbecue sauce. Um, and then you can find us in uh, stores like uh, uh, Safeway Eastern. We're here in the Giant Foods in the D.C. area. Stop and Shop up north, Shoprite, and on the east, um, the north, uh, northeast, and Lowe's Foods in North Carolina. And uh, you can also find us um, throughout the Midwest and most of the Midwestern stores. You know, festivals, Sendix, um, um Mariano's in Chicago, 
Um, and uh, <clears throat> then we're going to be launching nationally with Whole Foods next year in April too. And uh, likely Kroger as well. So those may be two game changers for you. Yeah, that's what we're and you said about. Walmart as well. You're, you're launching in a number of stores with, with Walmart as well. So. Right. Well, Abe, I really appreciate you just taking the time today on a, on a rainy Friday afternoon in Virginia. I don't know if it's raining where you it are, is. but where we are, it's really pouring. Bad. But uh, it's here. just yeah. been a, a great opportunity just to kind of hear your story and, and let you share with us. I'm even, I just love the kind of the entrepreneurial roller coaster and just the transitions that you've made in your life and how all points have kind of led to this this point that you're at right now and, and just where you are. And I appreciate you being so free to share information and and uh, just kind of paint the picture for us and really just playing your part in helping all boats rise in a rising tide. Yeah. Hey, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Another episode in the books. We hope you heard some great takeaways. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review on iTunes and YouTube. As always, thanks for listening to Rising Tide.